0: Welcome to the Media Law Podcast. I'm Tom Bennett. This is the second of two special episodes focusing on particular cases and discussing those which we consider to be the most significant, the most underappreciated in terms of their importance, and our personal favourites. In the first, we talked about privacy cases. Today, we do the defamation ones. I say we, and who's with me, it'll come as no surprise at all to listeners to hear it's my usual co-host, Paul Rag. So, let's jump straight in, shall we, Paul? Uh, defamation cases. We'll start with uh, those we consider to be the most significant defamation cases of all mm. time. Uh, what have you got for us?
1: Well, I'm going to kick us off by uh, talking about Flood and uh, Times newspapers, which went to the Supreme Court uh, in 2012. Now, um Choosing uh, the most significant um, defamation case is, of course, uh, an incredibly difficult task. Uh, We are literally spoiled for choice. Uh, Unlike privacy, uh, the defamation jurisprudence uh, in the UK extends back um, far, far into antiquity. Uh, We can go right back into at least the 1600s and find some pretty good uh, defamation cases. And um, we can certainly find a lot of uh, Victorian cases which we still rely upon today, some of which I will talk about shortly. Um, so uh, whichever one uh, we choose as our most significant, we are on a hiding to nothing because uh, everybody is bound to disagree with us. The reason I've chosen Flood, though, is that I think it it um, captures uh, some of the essential elements that make for a difficult defamation Case a difficult case for judges uh, to deal with, because on the one hand, uh, there is an individual um, whose uh, reputation uh, will be seriously affected by the uh, allegations that have been made uh, against them. On the other hand, we have uh, the newspaper asserting uh, the sort of classic uh, watchdog uh, role or assuming the classic watchdog role in trying to bring what it thinks is a matter of significant public interest uh, to the public's uh, attention. Now, for the longest time, of course, uh, public interest uh, as a defence was a, was rather uh, thorny and convoluted, um, uh, which has hopefully been made slightly easier by the uh, Defamation Act of 2013. Um, But here we have um, a uh, set of facts in which the claimant was uh, a detective sergeant uh, in the Metropolitan Police Service um, who um, journalists for the Times newspaper uh, were given information about. They were giving information from an anonymous source uh, that Russian oligarchs had paid uh, a police officer for information about extradition requests. Uh, now, the unnamed source had stated that the police officer uh, had been given the code name Noah. Um, this uh, led journalists at the Times to conclude that actually it was a claimant uh, who who was Noah. On the basis that uh, his surname is Flood. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, they wish to uh, and so they investigated uh this allegation. Um interestingly, uh, journalists um rather than going straight to the to uh, press uh, with this, did try and enlist the help of uh, the Metropolitan Police Service. Uh they asked the MPS to investigate. Uh, That investigation did take place, and it took place at the request, therefore, of the Times. uh, And the Times subsequently uh, published a story entitled Detective Accused of Taking Bribes from Russian Exiles. Uh, Now, the question for the court when it uh, got all the way up to the Supreme Court uh, was... a question on the facts, and the facts have been divided in essentially into two parts. The first part were the uh, allegations that were made in the period from the original publication of the story, detective accused of taking bribes, uh, all the way up to, uh, so that took place on on the 2nd of June 2006, all the way up to the 5th of September 2007, uh, when the NPS informed the Times that its investigation had concluded and that the claimant had no case to answer. Uh, so at that point, uh, the Times were aware that uh, there was nothing uh, in the allegation. Uh, they couldn't justify a continuing to publish uh, this story. Um, and uh, at first instance, Mr Justice hat's decision was... was uh, straightforward, I think, and very sensible, which was that uh, the allegations up to uh, that point, uh, the 5th of September 2007, were protected uh, by uh, Reynolds, or uh, what we might say protected as a matter of public interest. Um, But after the 5th of September, they were no longer um, protected. Now, the Court of Appeal overturned that. Uh, it, original decision, it thought that Mr Justice Tugendhat was wrong to say uh, initially that there was um, grounds for the Reynolds uh, defence applying, um, but the Supreme Court reinstated uh, the uh, the original decision of Mr Justice uh, Tugendhat. Uh, they were satisfied that the defence succeeded, even though uh, it was the Times that had prompted the MPS to launch the investigation uh, originally. So for me, this is a significant decision um, because it says something about the court's treatment in a defamation context of newspapers exercising this kind of assumed role of uh, keeping uh, an eye on power, keeping a check on power.
0: It's always struck me, uh, The Flood Case, as, as you rightly say, a hard one. Because it comes down to whether it's necessary and proportionate to name an individual Mm -hmm. who is suspected of wrongdoing when the allegation that there is a wrongdoer in the metropolitan police doing these things is without the name still a matter of public interest um the newspaper's argument was that it was necessary to name the individual in order to lend color to the story and thus in essence, to attract readers to read it and to take it seriously and thus get the public interest material across in a more efficient mm-hmm. manner. And the Supreme Court accepted, I think controversially, the proposition that editors have to have, a de- uh, there has to be a margin of appreciation granted to editorial de- decision-making mm-hmm. in respect of how best to present a story so uh so as to make the public interest elements of it stick. Yeah. Um because this to me is uh well, it's a classic instance of what the philosopher Thomas Nagel calls ruthlessness. It is the very deliberate sacrificing of the interests of a minority or a single individual uh in order to secure significant interest for a larger number of individuals Uh, and the the claimant's name here was dragged through the mud Mm. absolutely explicitly in order to give the story color not because it was factually correct Mm. to name him but because it made the story more interesting if you can point the finger at a particular person, um, traditionally, of course, defamation law has been all about protecting the individual at whom the finger is pointed.
1: Yeah,
0: um, and, and so you know, looking at this in uh, both an historical context and a purposive context. Mm. I think the decision is one which is, 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 is obviously controversial. It's always been one that I've been uncomfortable yeah. with. Um, I, yeah, I wonder what your thoughts were on, on, on that issue of, of, of well naming and editorial discretion and adding colour.
1: Yeah, well, it's story. interesting. When you read the judgment, um, of course, uh, this is something that uh, the judges thought about carefully, but there's only Lord Phillips... That offers resistance to this idea that there's a legitimacy in adding color uh, in giving the story this extra element of of uh, sort of this personal interest um, and it it really buys into uh, an ongoing myth that we have that uh, the press are a public watchdog and therefore need to be recognised as such uh, in law. Um, and it's it, it, this is an example of where I think this argument uh, falls down, because it is quite tenuous and, and superficial, there isn't really any basis for it. This is an argument that's really pulled up by its own bootstraps, um, because I mean, if something like Flood in isolation, the times were the ones that prompted the investigation. The investigation takes place at the times prompting, uh, and um, the conclusion is there's no case to answer. There's nothing here to, to sort of stand the story up. Um, But... It, I can understand uh, judges not wanting to sort of get too deeply involved in the in the question of what should and shouldn't have been said. But that sort of reluctance, that hesitancy, I think um, that queasiness is something that they do need to engage with as part of the proportionality exercise. And that, I'm afraid, is something that they just... Don't take full responsibility for, or, or rather, would would like to sort of pretend it doesn't exist. Uh, there, there's no there's no special reason why judges can't engage in a proper proportionality exercise in the context of newspapers. And this idea that press freedom precludes the full realization of uh, proportionality, is, I'm afraid, a fiction uh, that judges too easily buy into.
0: Well, I can't say that I disagree with that.
1: I mean, it'd be better for the discussion if he did, but um, never mind. Discussion may
0: be timing, not so much. So we're going to move on. Um, uh, and the case that I've chosen here as uh, the most significant defamation case from my perspective is one that you've mentioned already. It's the Reynolds case. Mm. Um, now, the Reynolds decision um, uh, is, of course, one that is uh, well known uh, in the field um, because it recognized the eponymous, though now uh, defunct, defense Reynolds privilege, sometimes known simply as the Reynolds defense. It's a case that came before the House of Lords in 2001, shortly after the Human Rights Act had come into force in uh, late 2000. Um, The facts giving rise to it had taken place earlier. Um, The case was to do with an article published in uh, the UK edition of The Times, uh, though it was also published in. uh, the uh, Republic of Ireland edition uh, of the Times and subject to separate judicial proceedings there. Um, an allegation concerning the then Irish Taoiseach, Albert Reynolds. And the allegations essentially amounted to uh, statements that he had misled the Irish Parliament. Now, he issued proceedings in respect of the uh, the allegation, as I say, Um, It worked its way through the uh, courts in the United Kingdom and uh, landed eventually in the House of Lords. Um, The defence of truth was not going to succeed. Um, So the question was whether it was possible for defendant newspaper to rely on some sort of privilege based defence. At the time, the only recognized applicable or possibly applicable privilege, privilege defense uh, was the defense known as qualified privilege at common law. Now, common law qualified privilege, which is a fantastically complex defense, um, it relies uh, on the creation of uh, a, a situation of privilege. And a situation of privilege occurs in any circumstances where uh, the defendant uh, is under a legal, moral, or social duty to impart the information, including the defamatory statement, to the audience. And, crucially, the audience has a reciprocal duty or interest in receiving that information. So classic examples would be situations in which one employee reports another employee's wrongdoing to a line manager, for example, or a situation, and the one that I'm constantly telling my students about, where you have a university lecturer imparting information about the law or whatever subject, uh, to a room full of students, because uh, there is a legal duty on me, the lecturer, to impart the information. It says in my contract, thou shalt teach. And there is a reciprocal, uh, these days, <laughs> hideously financial interest uh, on the part of the students, uh, uh, since they also have a detailed and expensive contractual arrangement with the university in receiving my teaching. Now, so long as the defendant imparts the information in good faith, essentially, uh, imparts it for the purposes for which the occasion of privilege arises, i.e. so long as I'm doing it in order to teach and not to exact some personal vendetta against whomever I happen to be talking about, then I can say whatever I please. The occasion is privileged. And that privilege gets lost only if I act uh, with malice against the claimant's interests. Now, this works fine in the kind of situations that I've outlined, your classic instance of a line manager talking to employees or a lecturer talking to a room full of students, pretty small-scale interactions where there are clearly defined uh, duties and interests that apply to both parties. But it doesn't work well for the media. For it is very difficult to say that Whilst a a, a news organization can claim it has a duty to inform the public, the public does not have a reciprocal duty or interest in reading that particular publication. So that reciprocity and the exclusiveness of the reciprocal relationship is not present. Conceptually, it doesn't really work. You could stretch it. But it doesn't really work on its face. And this is what gave uh, the House of Lords some trouble. But the House of Lords was operating in a context in which you have other jurisdictions, most importantly, the United States, having recognized earlier in the 20th century, the notion of a public interest type defense that media organizations should be in some way entitled to a different kind of privilege because of their role as a public watchdog and entitled to report on matters of public interest notwithstanding the lack of reciprocity and uh, this is the sort of defense that gets recognized it's not the same as the uh, uh new york times and sullivan defense from the us uh, it is one that is more nuanced, but it, it it recognizes this novel defense, the Reynolds defense. At the time, it's characterized as an extension of qualified privilege, but uh, it subsequently um, becomes apparent that it's a, a more novel defense. More on that later. The Reynolds defense then provides a defense in circumstances in which defendant publishes a statement on a matter of public interest having engaged in responsible journalism. There are There's a list of 10 indicative factors that the court can consider to determine whether the journalism has been sufficiently responsible. Um, this has over the years been treated well and treated less well by subsequent courts. Um, for a time, it was treated as a, as, as a checklist of hurdles that the defendant had to get over. Um, uh, House of Lords subsequently clarified that was not the right approach, that this was a non-exhaustive list, uh, merely indicative of the sorts of things uh, that needed to be taken into account. But, for example, um, you're talking about efforts made to determine the veracity of the information, uh, opportunities for a uh, claimant to put their side of the story, the tone and where, where, the tone of the piece, whether it is you know, neutrally reported or whether it's sensationalist. Um, but, but I, I think the, the main linking factor amongst all that is, you know, how much effort was made to determine that the allegations were true before it was published, even if it subsequently turned out that they were not true. Yeah. Um, so for me, Reynolds is the most important decision because it recognises that the media have a different position and law to any other kind of defendant in a defamation case. So much so that a whole new defence has to be structured around uh, media organisations in order to protect Article 10 Uh, of the European Convention on Human Rights, the right to freedom of expression. Um, And it is uh, a a defence that has been emulated elsewhere in the world. Um, You look to um, Canada, for example, which recognised a similar defence in the case of Grant and Torstar. Um, in, in the Canadian courts could have taken inspiration either from the United States or from the United Kingdom. Grant and Torstar is closer to the English position, uh, certainly far closer uh, than uh, the uh, New York Times and Sullivan ruling uh, uh, is. It's closer to that kind of more nuanced uh, position. Um, so, yeah, that for me, Paul, is 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 the big one. Um, it's, of course, been abolished, which is, makes it slightly odd to be talking about it now, because Section 4 of the defamation Act 2013 abolished the Reynolds yeah. defence and replaced it with a defence that looks suspiciously yeah. similar. But I think it's going to carry on being significant. That's one of the reasons why I picked it, because as the courts look to interpret the new Section 4 defence of public interest with minimal guidance in the act itself from Parliament, yeah. predictably, helpfully there, Um, the courts are going to look to older Reynolds jurisprudence to make sense of it. I mean, that's clearly going to happen. And we've seen it happen already in a few cases that we've had on Section 4.
1: Yeah, I I have several difficulties with with Reynolds. I don't have time to go through them all. But one of the the principal difficulties I have is with this treatment of qualified privilege to turn it into something uh, artificial. Uh, That is, um, that turns it into something that's very different from what I take to be the essence of privilege and qualified privilege. Uh, Now, we haven't so far touched upon defamation law as a sort of theoretical beast as opposed to defamation law, the, the sort of principles we find in the positive law. Um and, and it can be difficult to talk about defamation law as a, a theoretical concept because it is um a structure that has been added to over the years such in, in such varying ways that it can be difficult to sort of step back and see a discernible shape. But for me, um privilege and qualified privilege, the idea is quite simple. It's this it's this idea as you touched on, Tom, of um the court effectively saying, look, the the potential benefits of allowing freedom in these circumstances far outweighs any attendant risk uh, or any detriment to the individual uh, specifically. So there's a kind of crude utilitarian judgment taking place that society needs uh, freedom in certain circumstances um, For example, giving evidence at uh, a trial, uh, giving uh, that report that you talked about from the employee to the employer, and previously, of course, references, although references are are sort of complicated now by other factors, but the idea that you should have the freedom to say things freely without having to be mindful of language and, and sort of without being chilled by the prospect of of committing uh, an actionable uh, defamatory uh, statement um now that that's perfectly straightforward and and defensible although as i say it's a crude utilitarianism but it but it's perfectly defensible i think in the, in the usual circumstances for qualified privilege but incredibly problematic in a newspaper context because the justification for extending it to journalism I find deeply problematic. It does continue to buy into this idea of specialness uh, for the press. Uh, it is a heavily qualified. Um, uh, sorry, the, the use of the word qual- "qualified" again is is sort of confusing there, but it is a heavily qualified, uh, qualified privilege. Uh, under Reynolds, you know the, the the hoops that have to be gone through uh, are quite cumbersome. Um But I think, in the aftermath of Reynolds, we saw the courts uh trying to keep uh qualifying and contextualizing uh, this idea of responsible journalism um and uh that for me uh was a was a signal uh of the weaknesses inherent in the term in the idea. Um, itself of, of specialness as it got extended beyond further beyond uh, the original circumstances
0: yes of course one of the big points of controversy about the Reynolds defence um, and it's a, a criticism leveled at it I think very powerfully by the uh, media and entertainment lawyer Jonathan Code is Uh, The fact that the Reynolds defense, if successfully deployed, means that a claimant who has, in fact, been defamed by information that is, in fact, not true, will lose the case that they bring, ostensibly to vindicate that reputation, will be unable to vindicate their reputation, will be out a pretty penny for having done so, because litigation is... Inordinately expensive in defamation. Yeah. We're talking, you know, minimally six figures on all yeah. sides. And because the claimant loses, they'll be saddled with the costs of the yeah. other side, which, if it's a media defendant, and in a Reynolds case it will be, will be very, very expensive because they will spare no expense in defending the claim. Um, it, it ends up being extraordinarily tough on claimants. Um, and I've always thought that. A proportionate solution would be for the court to, if it mustn't, if, if, if the court's view is that it would be inappropriate to hold the newspaper liable because there is public interest in what was done, the court could at least issue a clear and unambiguous declaration falsity mm. and split the costs of mm. the litigation. Um, perhaps even award the costs to the claimant, but with no damages. Yep. Um, it's something to to ensure that the claimant is able to vindicate their reputation and not be left out of pocket or too out of pocket um, in in doing so. But it's it's a difficult balance the court's trying to strike. Yep. Um, whilst we're on the subject of Reynolds, I want to switch to our next category. Mm. Um, which is um, underappreciated cases, though cases whose significance is not perhaps um, noticed or appreciated in the way that it ought to be. And the reason that I want to jump onto that now is that my underappreciated case is Reynolds again. I think it's the most important case, but I also think its significance is underappreciated. And to explain why, I'm going to get my academic geek on even more than I have uh, in what I've said already.
1: That's not possible.
0: Um, (laughs) Well, we shall see. Um, and Because it engages with the point that Paul's been making about um, the relationship between the Reynolds defence and uh, qualified privilege at common law uh, and how we deal with defamation as a concept. I think Reynolds goes underappreciated for uh, its methodological significance. And by that, I mean what courts actually did when you unpack the impact of the House of Lords decision. In the Reynolds case itself, it gets described, this process gets described very much along the lines of Adapting and updating the qualified privilege defense. And it does so in a way that's remarkably similar to the way the House of Lords, more or less the same panel, the House of Lords actually, um, just a couple of years later did in the Campbell case with privacy, where they talked about um, elaborating the doctrine of confidence. Um, as uh, it developed this, uh, the doctrine of misuse of private information. And just as a few years down the line, the courts eventually admitted in privacy, actually what has happened here is that the whole new doctrine of misuse of private information has been recognized, has been created in effect. Um, the same thing eventually happens in defamation. And several years later, you have the Lechansky litigation, which um, uh, occurs both in the UK courts and eventually in the Strasbourg court as well, um, where the House of Lords ends up uh, agreeing that um, what actually happened in the Reynolds case was that uh, a new defence was created, Uh, a different jurisprudential creature from that which went before, I think is the way that Lord Hoffman described it in the Jameel case. Uh, if memory serves, a um, different jurisprudential creature, a sui generis defense. And that's what I think really happened in Reynolds. The, the court recognized or decided there was a need to treat the media in an exceptional way, and it based that need on uh, what it perceived to be the requirements of Article 10. Um, Having recognized that need, it decided to create a defense that just so happened to work perfectly for the media in most circumstances, uh, uh, and which, as we've seen, ends up being very, very tough on claimants because they are unable to vindicate their reputation if Reynolds is deployed successfully, um, and which, therefore, you know, means that, the mere presence of a Reynolds de- type defense in law constitutes a real uh, disincentive for claimants who are public figures when bringing uh, defamation cases because the chances of a Reynolds defense being deployed um, uh, you know, it can indicate uh, that uh, they, they may not only lose, but be significantly out of pocket in the process. So the court recognizes the need for this, perceives a need for it, and creates it. Now, it's quite controversial for courts to simply create things. So often there is a degree of subterfuge when courts do, and it gets fudged. And the courts try to link it to some previous doctrine. And that's what then happens. The courts say, well, look at this qualified privilege it's kind of a bit like qualified privilege except it's different in all these ways we're not going to detail in, you know in, 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 in um we're not gonna uh, explain in that much detail but uh, it, it's kind of a bit like what we've had before so it's not that new really it is as paul says we can't conceptualize this in the same way as common law qualified privilege Its purpose is completely different its effect is completely different um Uh, It it can only be sensibly described, as it eventually was, a few years later, as a sui generis defense. But why is that significant? Because when you look at the court doing this in defamation and you look at the court doing the same thing in privacy, it tells you something about the way that our highest court operates when it comes to developing doctrine in tort law. It is perfectly willing to recognize new causes of action or new significant parts of causes of action, such as a whole new defense, without linking it tightly to pre-existing doctrine. But it will not do so openly. Um, It will do so in a way that tries to make it look far less activist than it's actually being. And only several years later will it come around and admit the truth of what actually happened. And it will do so, frankly, when it suits the court to do so um, for the purposes of uh, explaining conceptually why actually the defence does work. Um, you know, they run up against the limitations of, oh, but if this is really a form of qualified privilege, then it shouldn't work here. Well, actually, it's not the form of qualified privilege. It's something separate. So now it is, it breaks free when it needs to break free. From uh, those uh, you know, ostensible limitations, so for that reason, I think it is not only the most important case, but also that its significance still goes on un- underappreciated.
1: Mm. Well, the the other um, the other reason I think Reynolds is is significant is is pulling is, on from what you just said, Tom. That um, it it represents. Uh, Possibly a judicial response to the incoming Human Rights Act, that here was a judiciary that almost uh, rebelled against the idea of needing the Human Rights Act uh, because the courts themselves saw saw themselves as the guardians of fundamental rights. uh, That they were capable of adjusting uh, through the common law uh, legal principles which interfered with, in this case, uh, freedom of speech. Uh, there are other cases that would that would sort of fit this uh, uh, this paradigm uh, within that time frame, um, but uh, the, the the case that I want to move on to um, is closely linked to that, and that's Thornton and, and Telegraph Media Group uh, Limited uh, from two thousand and ten, which is the first instant decision. Uh, from uh, Mr. Justice Tuggenhat. Now, whereas uh, Reynolds um, perhaps illustrates the need for statutory intervention uh, to help um, uh, give uh, defamation uh, shape uh, in circumstances where it was in danger of becoming shapeless, um, I think Thornton is an important but underappreciated decision because it points against the need for statutory intervention. Uh, I should add that uh, I'm not suggesting that statutory intervention uh, was necessary uh, because of um, because of what the court had done in Reynolds or anything else. But I think Thornton illustrates uh, the uh, one of the one of the real problems in uh, lit, uh, in introducing uh, legislation uh, in this area. So if I can grossly oversimplify what was going on both in Thornton and uh, the legisl- legislative picture uh, in 2012 as 2013, um, the Defamation Act comes in and uh, introduces Section 1. And Section 1, we know we talked about uh, a lot previously, uh, introduces this threshold uh, that needs to be satisfied in order to bring uh, a defamation claim to demonstrate its seriousness uh, to effectively, com- you now need to convince the court that it's actually worthwhile them uh, hearing your claim because it is significantly serious enough. Um, but Thornton, I think, uh, gave us uh, the uh, the structure that we needed um, to avoid the need for for, for a, a section one uh, provision uh, because Thornton is a case about. Seriousness. Now, if I can briefly summarize the facts, you've got the claimant who is uh, an academic uh, who's written uh, a book, uh, a non fiction book uh, called Seven Days in the Art World, uh, which is reviewed um, by the Daily Telegraph. And one of the things that the Daily Telegraph uh, review had picked up on uh, was uh, the idea of the uh, the claimant engaging in what the claimant describes as reflexive uh, ethnography, uh, where the uh, a claimant essentially, uh, when she's interviewing, uh, will invite uh, a response from her interviewees uh, to what she's proposing to write uh, to make sure it captures uh, the, the spirit of the conversation, uh, captures uh, the, the, uh, the person. Um and, and allowing effectively the interviewee to alter uh the the speech. Uh, the Daily Telegraph reporter though um found this problematic, deeply problematic um from um a principled perspective. And the idea of journalists being principled is of course itself noteworthy. But here we have a journalist saying that this uh this uh practice uh was deeply inappropriate um because um it amounted to a sort of prior restraint. Uh, the journalist described it as copy approval. Uh and uh in fact the journalist says in journalism we call this copy approval and disapprove. Now there you go. There's there's a sort of defamatory statement. The idea behind this then is that there is somehow a defamation uh, there is a defamatory Statement. There's something defamatory about uh, suggesting that uh, this uh, academic doesn't adhere to high levels of journalistic uh, practice. Uh, that by inviting the interviewee to comment on and alter the text, she is somehow betraying the code of journalism. Um, of course, this this case goes to uh, this case goes to trial, and, and Mr. Justice Tugganhat, um Uh, allows for it to be struck out uh, on the basis of summary judgment uh, because, uh, so far as he's concerned, uh, the case hasn't reached uh, the level of seriousness required uh, to justify uh, expending court time hearing the case. So he strikes it out. Now, he does uh, allow the claimant to appeal, uh, but she doesn't take advantage of this opportunity. For me, this is an important but overlooked decision because here was the opportunity um, for a a perfectly sensible treatment of seriousness. Um, it becomes important, I think, in the aftermath of the defamation That's because legislators thought they could do this better. They thought that they could just come up with uh, some bold, brief text that would capture perfectly the nuance of everything that Mr Justice Tuggan had said in his judgment. Uh, and it's an example of legislators, I'm afraid, uh, being far too heavy handed, far too cocky uh, and getting it wrong. And We know what problems Section 1 has uh, generated because we'd, uh, we've talked about it. From my perspective, if legislators had just left well alone, Uh, these problems that we saw in the show and other cases could have been avoided.
0: I agree with you entirely. Stop agreeing with me. It's just too... We're too aligned on defamation law, aren't we? That's the thing. You're just picking cases that are are too good for the right reasons. Um, Now, one thing I know you you, you wanted to talk about as well um, was the case of Chase. Yes. Um, which we mentioned just before we started recording. Um, we we talked about it, and you know, we and we agreed it's a case that's undervalued, but I, we think it's undervalued as a teaching tool, I think. Yeah. Um, um, the chase levels in defamation, which are used to distinguish between uh, different levels of severity that an allegedly defamatory statement might bear yeah. in their meaning um it's a really important part of practice in defamation but it doesn't tend to make the undergraduate curriculum in fact oftentimes it doesn't even make the undergraduate textbooks um for the kind of background reading um i don't know about you paul i think it should i mean i try to teach the chase levels where i can possibly squeeze it into my courses um because i think it's important that, that, that students understand That meaning really is the most difficult but most important part of pulling apart a defamation claim or even establishing a defamation Mm -hmm. claim. Um, And and it's important to, to understand some of the nuances in how the courts go about determining meaning um rather than teaching it at too high a level of abstraction what do you well
1: think? i think it is, i think you're right but i think i think the importance is uh, that the, there's a fallacy isn't there within um uh, the courts approach to to meaning and and that fallacy is the sort of superficiality i think of the idea that you can grade uh, language you can grade language when term, certain terms are stuck together uh, you can kind of give it a, a score um and uh and therefore uh, grade language uh, in terms of its consequence upon the individual but but sort of hypothetically well this is a this is a chase level 1 allegation no no this is a chase level 2 allegation and that sometimes can lead to uh, the faintly ridiculous uh, you promised me that we wouldn't talk about stalker and stalker because you know that stalker and stalker triggers me Uh, I cannot understand for a moment uh, the reasoning in Soccer and Stocker. But uh, meaning, I think, is just the superficiality in meaning is this idea that something definitive can be said about the English language uh, in, in short order. You know, you stick a couple of words together and this is all that they mean. And it's just it's. It's just an ignorance of the way that the English language works. All languages work. The the sophistication, the nuance, the the uh, it's a sort of attack on the the sort of artistic integrity. I think. Um, there you go.
0: Certainly, it's um, a series of points and debates about the nature of language that would be of great benefit to undergraduate students to discuss. It's the sort of level of discussion that from my perspective, uh, I, I think students of tort law should be talking mm. about. Um, because all too often, I think especially in this era of you know, the solicitors qualifying examination, which is the new route to becoming a solicitor that involves passing a multiple choice test after you've left law school rather than You know, just going from uh, the the understanding of law you've gotten from your law degree, um, we we may well be losing sight of detailed conceptual discussions about what law is and what it ought to be—the kind of normative Mm -hmm. Um, discussions—and moving to a state where all that we expect from law school is that people learn by rote some legal rules and then are able to recount them for six months or so after they leave. And you know, I, I, I look. There are schools out there that have taught in that way for a long time and will continue to do so. But there are plenty of uh, universities that do not, um, uh, or at least have not in the past. And I worry that higher education is tending ever more in that direction. Cases like Chase, if they are built into discussions in undergraduate curriculum give an opportunity not just to go, have I learned the doctrine in this area? Um, which I I just feel is a bit of a waste of time in tutorials, frankly. Um I expect students to to have learned the doctrine in the area. Um I expect them to have been up till about three in the morning learning the doctrine in the area before the tutorial, like what we all did. Um you know, at least you do is come in prepared. But you to to talk about what a ruling like Chase and the the tool that gives practitioners says about how law treats language and whether that is itself a sensible reflection of how language functions. Does it cohere with the the principles of language? language being the system upon which the legal system is built um it's extremely important but and it's also the 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 bit for me about legal studies that is interesting so you know perhaps a plea to academics listening if you teach law if you teach taught or if you teach defamation think about asking your students to deal with these sorts of issues
1: yeah um, we, we are in we are in danger we are in danger of destroying the uh, value of the common law the The value of the common law is the discourse, the necessary discourse that we must have to ensure there is sensitivity to the individual circumstances of both the claimant and the defendant. If we reduce law to a code, if we reduce it to just an interminable set of rules we lose that sensitivity, and we lose justice. And if we produce robotic lawyers who can only understand the language of a code, uh, then then justice is imperiled.
0: Well, I'm not 100% convinced that the law necessarily tends in the direction of justice, <laughs> but on all other points... I agree with you once again. Um, Our final section uh, is one I think we should deal with relatively swiftly, as uh, judges would say, in view of the hour. Um... This uh, then is uh, actually one our favourite cases, our personal favourites. Paul, what is your personal favourite defamation? Okay, my
1: my personal favourite is uh, Campbell and Spottiswood. This is a case that um, it, it dates back to eighteen sixty three. Uh, it is uh, a case involving a proselytiser who had been accused of defrauding his followers um the the facts are fairly convoluted and i, I won't get uh, stuck into those it is a case uh, that uh, is often treated as a landmark case on uh, questions of uh, fair comment qualified privilege uh, etc uh, it just has some fascinating features um i love uh, teaching it because the facts uh, are so rich uh, and so involved uh, it is one of um uh I think possibly one of the the last cases in which uh, the publisher is sued uh, as, as as sort of the publisher being a separate entity uh, to the um, the journal itself. Um, but w- one of the most fascinating aspects of it is that um, uh, Campbell and Spottiswood from eighteen sixty three is an appeal case. Um, but on the appeal uh, on the uh, appeal bench. Uh, is uh, Coburn CJ, uh, who had just been put there. Um, and uh, he this was his case. He had heard the first instance decision. So he sat on his own appeal. It's incredible.
0: Uh, and
1: funnily enough, decides that actually he got it right at first instance.
0: <laughs> oh, <laughs> what do you know?
1: There you go. That, that's all I want to say about Campbell. Um, Let's well, turn fantastic. to you,
0: Alright, so, my favourite case, and it has been since I heard of it, which was a few years ago now, uh, is, like yours, an older case, but I can beat you for the age of my case, because for mine, we're going all the way back to 1637. Um, and mine is the case of the Earl of Marlborough against Thomas Bennett. And it'll be immediately obvious why this is my favorite case. It is always fun to collect cases involving one's namesakes. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, uh, the defendant in this case is not one of my ancestors, but you never know. Um, there's a limit to how far back I've been able to trace my family tree. Um, Thomas Bennett was a peasant. Um, uh, who uh, said uh, of the Earl of Marlborough that he, a peasant, was every bit as good a man as the Earl of Marlborough. Now, the Earl of Marlborough took exception to a lowly peasant um, comparing himself uh, to the noble Earl uh, and sued Bennett for defamation. Um, The outcome of the case... Is that uh, Bennett lost? Um, that he was uh, required to pay a thousand pounds in damages to the Earl of Marlborough, and was also fined another thousand pounds on top of that uh, for the hideousness of uh, his his actions in declaring himself every bit as good a man as the Earl of Marlborough. So, two thousand pounds Bennett found himself out of the pocket, which. If you uh, bring that forward into today's money from uh, the late 1630s, allowing for inflation and so forth, works out at roughly 250,000 pounds, which is, of course, the notional cap on damages. So uh, today's notional cap on damages and defamation. Um, So uh, by today's standards, um, uh, Thomas Bennett um, committed as heinous a defamation as it is possible. To do do we know anything else about Thomas Panner? Have you done any research? Well, I tried I as as I say, I tried to uh, discover whether he was one of my relatives, I haven't managed to trace the family tree back quite that far. So I don't know. Um I don't know very much about him. He was a peasant of course. So um I guess the records um uh, of, of the peasantry of England back in those days perhaps uh, not as complete as they might be. <laughs> today but um, uh, if I do find out anything else about him in the coming years uh, you can be sure I will uh, talk about it uh, at some length on the podcast and that dear listener brings us to the end uh, not only of the episode but also of our podcast for this academic year Uh, we'll be taking a break now over the academic summer vacation um, but we will be back all things being equal, uh, in the autumn. So uh, look out for uh, the return of these uh, regular in-depth episodes of the Media Law Podcast probably around October time. Uh, We'll continue to tweet uh, on Twitter uh, throughout the summer, keeping you up to date with the headlines. And uh, we will also try to keep the newscast edition Uh, going over the summer months, possibly not quite so frequently as usual, but we'll make sure that you're not left too far behind the times with your media law headlines. Um, Paul and I wish you a very pleasant and hopefully relatively freely moving summer. Take care of yourselves. We'll see you in the autumn. Bye.